my name is Charles Goldfarb, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alexander Aleem, for the AOA podcast, Lessons in Orthopedic Leadership. Today is a very special episode as we welcome a distinguished guest, Dr. Jim Herndon, to discuss a remarkable project. Please check out this episode's notes section for more information about the book we're going to discuss, which is A History of Orthopedics at Harvard and Its Teaching Hospitals by Dr. James Herndon. The full book description can be found in the notes as well as information on where to purchase this remarkable five-volume work. Additionally, we are grateful for Peter E. Randall Publisher for its generous support of this conversation on our podcast, Lessons in Orthopedic Leadership. I would like to start with a brief introduction uh, for those of you who don't know Dr. Herndon well, and then we will focus on the book itself. Dr. Herndon is the William H. and Johanna A. Harris Distinguished Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Chairman Emeritus. He has long been a leader in orthopedics, chairing departments of orthopedic surgery at Barron University and Rhode Island Hospital, and at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School and Medical Center. He has been involved with the AAOS, the ABOS, the AOA, the Orthopedic RRC, and the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, among other key orthopedic institutions. His practice was focused on trauma and adult reconstructive surgery. During his leadership years in the AAOS, he focused his efforts on improving patient safety. His dedication to this cause is embodied in his 2003 AAOS presidential speech entitled, One More Turn of the Wrench. Dr. Herndon greatly values his role as an educator, and he hopes that the birth of a specialty, this remarkable book, continues the legacy he has established through his years of teaching and his myriad presentations, publications, and studies. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Herndon. It's good to be with you both. Dr. Herndon, it's an honor to be able to speak with you. And I'm amazed at the career trajectory you've taken. I mean, listing any one of your accomplishments is amazing. And I wonder if you could, for myself and I ask our guests a lot this, as a, as a younger orthopedic surgeon trying to figure out how I can leave my mark in the field, maybe put yourself back 20, 30 years when you were starting. What was your motivation to, to dive into all these leadership activities and to be a trailblazer and to leave a legacy that you have left because it's an impressive thing, but it's fairly intimidating for someone like me to look at and be like, wow, how am I going to even accomplish a 10th of what you did? Well, you're very kind. And I must admit that I really had no preconceived goals, although I did know that I wanted to make some contributions. I actually started off in private practice for four years without Swanson in Michigan before I took the job as chief at Brown. I learned that I really wanted to contribute and I started to write papers and I enjoyed that. And so I thought that I would look for more leadership positions. And I have a basic problem. I had a hard time saying no. So every time I was asked to do something, I would take it on. But as I've advised younger people today, I suggest that you limit what you take on and do it well and not try to overreach. I think I may have overreached a bit. (laughs) You've been at some remarkable institutions, but as I understand it, and we're not really here today to talk so much about your career pathway, although all of us will find it interesting is the undertaking at Harvard and working to bring the various hospitals in a more aligned fashion had to be an incredible undertaking. Oh, it was. It was very challenging. And I understood the risks that I was taking when I accepted the position. I was recruited by Sam Thier, who was the president of the Partners Healthcare System at the time. 
a very well-known internist and academic physician. And his concepts in mind about integrated healthcare delivery systems coincided. And he and I kind of had some simpatico about what we'd like to achieve in terms of providing the, the right care in the right place for the right cost at the convenience of our patients and providing quality care. When he went after me to recruit me from Pittsburgh, I initially wasn't inclined to think about another move, especially with my wife, but eventually he convinced me that it was a worthwhile project and they were serious about trying to accomplish a merger of resources, if you will, to minimize costs, et cetera, and had all the ideal signs of a successful integrated delivery system. Didn't quite work out that way. Uh, <laughs> and I stayed in the job for five years until I retired from surgery and for my administrative position at Partners as a chief of orthopedics when I was 65 in 2003. I stayed on as residency director of the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Residency Program for another five years and then retired in 2008 from everything except running a clinic once a week. Coming to a place like Harvard with such a rich history, and then for some of us that may not be as familiar with the medical center, I mean, from my understanding, they kind of run independent, completely different hospitals, even though they're sort of under the Harvard name. Maybe that's some of the motivation that got you to the book, but what got you looking at the history of it 14 years ago, starting this project of trying to describe the history of how orthopedics was born at one of the world's premier medical institutions? Well, there's no doubt that each of the institutions here, Harvard and each of the hospitals, Mass General, Children's, City Hospital, the Brigham's, et cetera, are all unique and different and have their own separate cultures. But when I first came here in 1998, I read Carter Rowe's book called Lest We Forget, which is a brief history about Mass General Hospital's orthopedic department. He essentially described his experience as a resident first and then as a staff member, and he stayed on for his entire career here after World War II, and it's a very limited volume. So that made me a little interested about how I could do something for orthopedics as a whole in the system that I couldn't accomplish in a partner's department, if you will. And so I started looking around and I found another book in 2006, Nicholas Tilney, a transplant surgeon at the Brigham's, wrote a book about the history of surgery at the Brigham Hospital. Even though Clem Sledge and other famous orthopedists walked those halls, he didn't mention the name of a single orthopedic surgeon in his book. He mentioned Harvey Cushing, who was the first chairman of surgery, who was a neurosurgeon, as you know, but didn't mention anything about the contributions of orthopedic surgeons. So I was a little upset about that. And then in 2008, the Academy came out with its book, Getting It Straight, which was a history of orthopedics in the United States. I was a little upset because it emphasized a lot about the developments of orthopedics in New York, which was well known, and they surely have made many accomplishments, as well as Philadelphia, but very little about Boston orthopedics. So I think after I read that, I said, I would like to really look around and delve into this problem and see if I can find what orthopedic surgeons have contributed to our field, how they advanced our field over the years in Boston and all the various hospitals. And I wanted to be complete. I didn't want to leave anybody out. It's mind-boggling to think about this. <laughs> I love your motivations. It's incredibly important to set the record straight. And that's what is so interesting about this project. You say you were focused on the surgeons. So your research was surgeon-based more than hospital-based or obviously a combination? It was really a combination. So because it's so complex, I focused it on Harvard and then each of the hospitals. So it included Mass General, obviously, included Boston Children's Hospital, 
It included the Robert Breck Brigham and the Peter Bent Brigham, and eventually their combination into the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And it also included Boston City Hospital because Harvard had had a major affiliation with Boston City Hospital until 1974, when the mayor decided that it would only be a teaching institution for Boston University, and Harvard and Tufts had to leave. At the same time, focusing on those institutions allowed me then to concentrate on the individual surgeons in the beginning, general surgeons who really contributed many of the innovations in orthopedics, and eventually the orthopedic surgeons themselves made it easier for me to put it together. How do you start with that? Was it just kind of a connection with the medical libraries? I mean, obviously an institution like Harvard, I'm assuming is going to have pretty good archives, (laughs) but we've all seen things of recordings from the early 20th and late 19th century. It's maybe not as much detail as as we kind of want, but what were some of the inroads you made initially? The history section in the Countway Medical Library of Harvard Medical School. So on the lower, second lower basement floor is this wonderfully rich uh, array of primary documents, dean's records, minutes of meetings, all kinds of primary source documents, diaries of the individuals, the original founding documents on the development of the hospitals, and the Warren Medical Museum, which has about 10,000 medical specimens that I was able to rummage through and find out interesting stories about people and patients and things like that. So I started there and uh, began to notice that many of the documents that were in that library also were loaned to it by the archives of each of the hospitals. So I went to the archivists and found, I didn't even know they had archivists in the hospitals. I went to the archivists at Mass General, the Brigham, Boston Children's, BI, and talked to each of the archivists and found another great source of rich original primary documents that I could read and study. Minutes of the department meetings, minutes, letters back and forth between warring physicians, if you will, (laughs) about controversies in the early 19th century. I was able to read those primary documents. I could go through Mass General and look at the original operative log, handwritten, of the first orthopedic case done in 1821 at Mass General Hospital, which was a dislocated hip and I could read the Dr. John Collins Warren's handwritten note about what it was all about, what he did, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it was wonderful. I had a great time doing it. That is so cool. That's just got to be so unbelievable. I was a history major in college, and so oh, okay. I, I, it really does sound interesting. But now I'm understanding the 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I think the background is really interesting, but I would expect, and I know that I speak for myself and Alexander, but I would expect the listeners to be interested in some stories, some details. Tell us about the infamous murder of Dr. George Parkman at, this, <laughs> at Harvard in 1849. Well, a doctor by the name of Webster was the professor of chemistry. There were only four professors in the medical school at that time, and the medical school was located at North Grove Street. The original Harvard Medical School was on the Harvard campus in Cambridge but it moved to North Grove Street and was there for about 25 years or so. And that's right in front of Mass General Hospital. And Dr. Webster had his laboratory there. Dr. Webster had a very rich lifestyle, but he didn't have an income to accompany it. Drained his wife's inheritance with his fancy lifestyle. And he started borrowing money from his colleagues and friends. 
And he borrowed a lot of money from a fellow by the name of Dr. Parkman, who was interested in psychiatry, never really practiced medicine very much, and took over his father's apartment buildings and homes and things that he owned and rented out and leased, et cetera, and managed the business. Well, Parkman loaned him a great deal of money, loaned Webster a great deal of money. And Webster had a stone collection. And he used that as collateral on a couple of occasions to get Parkman to give him some money. Parkman later discovered that he was using the same stone collection that used as collateral to get money from other colleagues. So one afternoon, Dr. Parkman went up to the lab on the North Grove Street Medical School and confronted Dr. Webster. They got into an argument. Webster got mad and hit him over the head with a piece of wood from his fireplace and killed him. He immediately tried to cover his tracks by cutting up the body, dismembering it, putting parts of it down the privy, burning parts of it, putting other parts in lye. It didn't work. My publisher actually asked me why I was including that in this book. You might think that yourself, right? Well, it turns out that Dr. Bigelow, Henry J. Bigelow, very famous for the white ligament of Bigelow, etc., was the physician who went in with the janitor to look in the privy in the bottom floor of this medical school, which drained into the Charles River. And they tore down the brick wall and pulled out some remains. And Dr. Bigelow identified those as human remains and not cadaveric. They weren't injected. They were fresh human remains. So Dr. Bigelow was going to become a witness for the trial. However, he cut his hand and developed a very serious wound infection. His hand was hospitalized and couldn't attend the actual trial. But to make a long story short, Dr. Webster was put on trial. Uh, he said he was not responsible. He didn't kill Parkman. He didn't know where he was, uh, didn't know anything about his disappearance. He was convicted, sentenced to hang. Then later he relented to his minister that he did do it and would like to get forgiveness and would like to live life in prison instead of being hanged. The governor wouldn't have anything to do with it. And so they hung him in the jail, the Leverett uh, Jail, which is just a block or two from Mass General Hospital. Wow. Well, that's <laughs> quite, quite a scandal at Harvard. I understand why your editors are wondering why you would include that in distinguished history. I mean, there's got to be countless little anecdotes to the stories like this as you kind of go through. I mean, obviously, right. when you have 100 plus years of history and personalities of this, maybe what was one of the more surprising, interesting stories that you found or something that going through you didn't expect kind of maybe based on someone's reputation or even interactions with them? There are many. Uh, and the book is filled with them. I think it's interesting to the membership of the AOA to think about this book as really a list of leaders in the field. They were all leaders at their time. They took great risks. There's two chapters, one in World War One, one in World War II, where they took tremendous risks to make contributions to the field. And they're full of stories that I could tell you. A couple come up. First of all, John Collins Warren, who was a general surgeon who favored orthopedic surgery, uh, who was the guy who did the first public demonstration of ether in 1846 at Mass General. So before that time, there was no uh, anesthetic available. And so he was a very courageous guy because he had tried nitrous oxide and failed on one occasion in a public amphitheater at Mass General. And uh, that's when that phrase, it's all humbug, came about. And so he was quite embarrassed with that. A couple of years later, he was offered the opportunity by a Dr. Morton, a dentist, to try ether. Now, ether was not uh, a known substance at the time. They called them unknown substances. The physicians called unknown substances in those days as nostrums. And it was unethical for a physician to use the nostrum. 
So here he is, he's uh, about 65 or 66 years old, end of his career as chief at Mass General, and he's so tired of inflicting pain on patients uh, with operations that he's trying everything to get a pain reliever and an anesthetic. He accepts the opportunity to use ether without knowing what it is, knowing full well the risks that he was taking for condemnation by his colleagues. And he went ahead and did it, and it was successful. From there on, anesthesia changed the field of surgery remarkably. Wow. Perhaps pick a leader, an orthopedic leader that uh, some of us would recognize, certainly not present day, at Boston Children's, for example, and maybe share why this person was particularly impactful, whether it be at Children's Hospital or on orthopedics in general at Harvard. Well, I'll pick the first uh, orthopedic surgeon there, Edward Bradford. I don't know if you know that name or not. Edward Bradford uh, was an orthopedic surgeon at the tail end of the uh, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, he was a general surgeon trained at Boston City Hospital after graduating from Harvard, who was interested in orthopedics and limited his practice to orthopedics, as many surgeons did in those days. They didn't go to Europe. Many later went to Europe, but at this time, they weren't going to Europe to train. They didn't have training programs in the United States. So he was a surgeon and he favored orthopedics. And he taught orthopedics because he loved it so much. And he became known as the the teacher of orthopedics at Harvard. And somewhere around the early 20th century, I'm blocking on the actual date, he was named the first assistant professor of orthopedic surgery. Before that time, he was assistant professor of surgery. And all the appointments were surgery appointments. So he became the first orthopedic surgeon to have a faculty appointment. And it's I'll, I'll quote something that people said at the time that he established orthopedics as a discipline separate from surgery. And eventually the department grew and expanded. His influence was enormous. I could go on for a long time just about what he had done, but he was a major leader. That's, that's awesome. You, you had kind of touched on this a, a few minutes ago, but for someone that may not have a personal connection to Harvard, why would we want to pick up this book? And specifically, why would kind of our listeners from the AOA want to really dive deep into the history of, of orthopedics within Harvard? What, what it would be your kind of tell anybody that is trying to figure out why to read the book and really dive deep into this history. I'll give you another example, and that's a dislocated hip. Everybody's in, all orthopedic surgeons early in their training, especially are interested in dislocated hips, maybe not in their specialty choice, but at least in their beginning residency programs. And the first dislocated hip, as I mentioned to you, treated at Mass General Hospital was in 1821, a man who had fallen off his horse in Maine, and the horse had fallen backwards on him with his legs spread apart, and he dislocated one hip. He was treated uh, inadequately. They had no x-rays, of course, at this time, no anesthesia at this time. His legs were wrapped together after what the surgeons thought was a closed reduction, but it turned out to be inadequate. He came down to Mass General Hospital three months later, requesting John Collins Warren to treat him. Warren saw him in one of the local pubs, examined him, couldn't establish the diagnosis, thought it was a dislocation, but couldn't rule out a fracture. Eventually came to the conclusion it was a dislocation, but since it was three months old, felt it was not going to be treatable. The man begged him to give it a try, so he did. He admitted him to the hospital and gave him a sedative of some kind, usually it was alcohol or something like that, a warm bath, a little bloodletting, right? They drained 14 cc's of his blood, 
and gave him an emetic. So that was the preparation at the time. Put him in his god-awful traction of ropes and pulleys and weights and pulled on him for a couple hours unsuccessfully. The man went on to sue his doctors, and it actually amounted to a huge increase in malpractice cases in the United States at that time, especially in trauma. But in terms of the dislocated hip, uh, it wasn't until some 47 years later in 1868, that Henry J. Bigelow described the wide ligament of Bigelow and worked out a way to reduce a dislocated hip with his so-called flexion method. So it was unknown before that time, but he defied all the other previous knowledge about how to treat dislocated hips with traction by this simplified technique that he discovered by his own anatomic dissections. And thereafter, dislocated hips have been treated with basically his flexion method of reduction without the use of traction and weights and pulleys, et cetera. So it's an interesting story. They're interesting characters. Bigelow was an interesting man himself. I'll give you one little tidbit. He was quite a flashy dresser, and he reminded me of orthopedic surgeons today because he began the, the tradition of wearing blue blazers. <laughs> so he had a he had a blue blazer that he wore frequently. Typical of what you see at the academy or at the AOA meeting, right? <laughs> <laughs> These are these are fantastic stories. I'm wondering if maybe we could touch a little bit on some, some maybe more of the evolution of modern orthopedics. You know, sports medicine was not something that these these founders of, of orthopedic surgery even really thought of. And there's a rich history of sports medicine at at Harvard Medical School. How did this evolve? And, and maybe some stories about how we became really the premier caretakers for athletes. So I was quite surprised when I started my reading in this arena and discovered that many of the original concepts in sports medicine were developed at Harvard, not in the hospitals, but at the Harvard School itself, in the Department of Athletic uh, Affairs or whatever they wanted to call it at the time. They had different names, but I'll give you a few examples. So for instance, the first physician ever to work with a football team was at Harvard, assigned in 1890. Really quite remarkable to have a physician on site at football games in 1890. He and a subsequent uh, physician assigned to the team wrote some papers in the late 1898-1899 years on the effects of rowing and also football on heart size as well as kidney function. Uh, They noticed a lot of proteinuria in the the urine of these athletes. Using percussion, they believe they felt that the hearts were enlarged. Uh, They had no x-rays, of course, (laughs) Uh, but I found that very interesting. And as you go on, there's a man by the name of Ed Nichols, who in 1909 required the first use of a helmet for football players and the first uh, required use of pads for the thighs, knees, and shoulders. That had never been done before. He kept a log on all athletic injuries and wrote papers about athletic injuries, common injuries in different sports, especially football. He attended all football games. And in 1905, even though we don't have good protocols today, he had a protocol for concussion. He had a seven question protocol. He'd run out of the field if he saw a player that had a head injury of any kind. And he started asking these seven questions. If the player couldn't answer them, it took him right out of the game. So that was wow. in 1905. He was followed by Augustus Thorndike who then required the first use of helmets for ice hockey. And he established a three-knockout rule. And football was pretty rough in those days, as you can imagine. If you were knocked out three times, he suspended you for the season. You could not play the rest of the season. He was very remarkable, very thoughtful guy. He changed the treatment of contusions and soft tissue injuries before it was common to use heat for those injuries. And he's the guy that started 
cold and compressive wraps to minimize hematoma formation, et cetera. And he published a classic book on athletic injuries. So over the course of the first 40 years of the 20th century, Harvard Sports Medicine was quite progressive. These men didn't do a lot of surgery. And if they did it, they did it in different hospitals, Boston City, Boston Children's, Mass General. But they were mainly physicians or surgeons in the Department of Athletic Affairs at Harvard itself. That is unbelievable. Those are great little stories. I envision myself sitting by the fire reading this book, learning these unbelievable stories. So thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight. This has really been enlightening for both Alexandra and myself, and we do look forward to seeing the book in print. Congratulations, really a remarkable accomplishment. Well, thank you. It's been fun talking with you tonight. Yeah, Absolutely. thanks again, Dr. Hurd. This is an absolute pleasure. Just as a recap, Birth of a Specialty, A History of Orthopedics at Harvard and its Teaching Hospitals by Dr. Herndon, is well-illustrated hardcover history, which includes five volumes. Volumes one through four are printed, and volume five, the bibliography, is an ebook. Publication date is December 6, 2021. So congratulations on seeing the fruits of this uh, come up after 14 years. Advanced orders may be placed through the distributor pathway book service. Uh, Birth of a Specialty presents a comprehensive history of the specialty focused on U.S. contributions and including the orthopedic surgeons at Harvard Medical School and its major teaching hospitals. Volume one addresses the early surgical landscape, the development of the specialization of orthopedics, and the history of orthopedics at HMS. The history of HMS discusses the creation of the orthopedic department, curriculum, and residency program, the emergence of sports medicine, as we just talked about, as well as the infamous murder of Dr. George Parkman at the school in 1849 and contributions by surgeons to the case. Volumes two, three, and four present the history of orthopedics at each of Harvard's teaching hospitals, with volume two focused on Boston Children's Hospital, volume three on Massachusetts General Hospital, and volume four on Brigham and Women's Hospital, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and Boston City Hospital. Each hospital section begins discussing the origins of the institution, the evolution of the orthopedic department status at each hospital, the contributions of many great orthopedic surgeons, and the transition from the 20th to 21st century, including recruitment of orthopedic chairpersons at each of the hospitals. It ends with a discussion of the role of Harvard orthopedic surgeons in the world wars. So, Dr. Herndon, it's been an absolute pleasure. We really, really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. And I might just add that 2021 has been an important date for me to get this book published because this is our 100th anniversary of our Harvard Combined Orthopedic Residency Program. Remarkable. Thank you again, sir. Thank you very much. Take care. 